Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time that we can come together as a group of believers. We thank you for the time we're about to have as a potluck uh, where we can talk and laugh over a table. But God, we pray for this specifically as we come to uh, your word to be taught as we discuss things that are not always uh, fun and enlightening to discuss. Uh, Lord, we, our hearts echo the words of the last song that for my Savior loves me so He will hold me fast. And God, a lot of this life, once we become saved, feels like us stumbling uphill over and over and over again, waiting for You to come back or take us home. And so, Father, I pray that we would stumble uphill together and that we would do so by Your grace and by the leading of Your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I were the King of Westchester, there's a thought that'll keep you up at night. If I were the King of Westchester, what would I do? Well... Anytime it was over 60 degrees, I'd preach in flip-flops. The men of Westchester, if I were the king, might feel inclined to go to the barber and ask for the chuck cut. And the barber would say, what's that? And you say, well, it's, it's weird. It needs to be a, look like an uneven receding hairline. And if you could do something to make the head look lopsided, that would help too. There, there may be different decor around the church in the shape of red ends. How beautiful it would be. On a more serious note, I, I would tend to mandate things I thought were important. I might become more dogmatic than Scripture would prescribe. Everyone would be... And, and I would think they were good things. Everyone would be required to go on mission trips every few years. All the men would have to go to the boundary waters. If they didn't like it, they would just be told to suck it up. Uh, It would impact our spending. Our spending might focus more in, in different areas that I thought were important than what the church has felt God has led us to. Uh, Knowing my heart, I would over time drop grace from my approach and, and tend to become very legalistic. And my, my rulings would be based too much on my mood at the time. And you guys would realize how unstable I really am. The good news is that neither I nor any of the other pastors or elders are in line to become king of Westchester. Westchester has one king. He is unchanging and He is on the throne in heaven. Thank you, Lord, right? Last week, Pastors Dave and Austin did a a really good job of laying out what it means to have leaders in the church and who those leaders are as pastors and elders and, and that the pastors are really the teaching elders. And they laid out their qualifications and their calling and their manner. And Dave read this pesky verse from Hebrews at the end that says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
And so here I get the dubious task of telling you what it means to submit to your leaders. You're all going to love me by the end of this. Because I tell you to. Glad you guys saw that that joke. Um, But it says to submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. This is Hebrews 13, 17. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning. For that would be no advantage to you. So there's these instructions to obey and submit to these leaders to know their work, that our, our work is as those who are going to have to give an account for your souls, that we are watching over your souls. We are not leading from a posture of do so because I told you to. Which are words that sometimes we as parents have regrettably used maybe too much or at the wrong time. Why do I have to do that? Because I'm the dad and I said so. And I pray that as pastors and elders... That would not be our tone. And, and we also, as the people of the church, submit in such a way that, that allows the leaders to watch over our souls with joy and not with groaning. So, as we talk about authority and discipline within the church, hmm, I, I want us to realize some background. This is not a new thing. This isn't, there's a lot of things we do in the church that, that started maybe with the Reformation. This isn't something that started with the Reformation. Paul was telling the churches to do this. You know, we, a few weeks ago, uh, or a few months ago, I guess now, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 5 in our adult Bible fellowship. And Paul's. Paul says, why are you guys suing each other? Why are you going to unrighteous judges? You should be judging these things for yourselves and telling each other what's wrong. Peter exercised church discipline in a very drastic way in Acts 5 when he asked two people who gave generously to the church why they were lying to the Holy Spirit. And we have... uh, also, even before the church, this didn't start with the church, that God's people had discipline from each other. We think of Nathan confronting David over his sin. We think of Elijah confronting the whole nation over their worship of Baal. And Elijah disciplined with no rain for three years. And he slaughtered the prophets of Baal. And we have Moses Judging over the matters of Israel and assigning others to help him judge over these matters. Authority and discipline have not started with the church. This has been a a part of God's people collectively following the Lord since that started way back in the days of Moses and Abraham. Mark Deaver says that church discipline is like eating steamed Brussels sprouts. Nobody really wants to do it, but we know it's good for us. Here in this room, we're a collection of very imperfect people who are deep in the process of sanctification. All on this steep upward climb of becoming more holy. 
We're all trying to walk with Jesus. We're all messing up. And on a daily basis, we all need some form of correction. Most of that is hopefully done through the Holy Spirit. A lot of it is done through brothers and sisters in Christ who sometimes we happen to be married to who are saying, hey, you were kind of a jerk the other day. (laughs) We say, yeah, you're right. We repent. And a lot of it happens here at church. And and it's not necessarily because the leaders of the church are pointing out the sin. It just happens within the body of Christ. As sin is pointed out, is repented of, and growth occurs. And I think if we're really honest, we really like the idea of pastors and elders holding us accountable. And we like this idea that church discipline happens. But we're really fearful of it being abusive, as we should be, And we really don't like the idea that it may one day be directed at us. So what perspective should we have? I suggest that our our view of church discipline needs to be centered on the head of the church. On Christ. And as we look to Jesus for authority, and as our primary authority, how does that impact our, our, shape, our, our view of, of church discipline and authority. You know, Jesus is the chief shepherds, and, and one way to look at our pastors and elders is that of under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. And when we see this, we see that if you're taking notes, go ahead and take this out, that authority of the local church elders and pastors, this authority that's held by them, is from Christ. This authority of the pastors and elders is from Christ. Last week, I I mentioned Dave and Austin preaching. They did a great job of showing that these, these leaders, these elders and pastors, they have a call from the Lord. That they're acting in God's calls. Yes, they... uh, those who serve, they, they don't do so to fill out a boardroom. You know, after the service today, we're going to have this potluck and we're going to have a, have a membership meeting. And at these membership meetings, you know, once a year in particular, we vote in new elders, we vote in people for deacon groups. You, as a congregation, have voted to affirm the hiring of all of our pastors here at Westchester. And so there's certainly a role that you play in affirming the call of these men. And that's what you do. You affirm the call. But the call is not Westchester thinking, oh, we really like the qualifications of this person, therefore they should be an elder. The call is first and foremost from Jesus. Austin preached from Acts 20.28. I think we have this on a slide, that pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. And so as we we look at our elders, let's not say, well, we've assigned them to be elders to, to, to make sure the budget's in line and to make sure the direction of the church is good. No, let's, let's take a step back of humility and realize the Holy Spirit has done this.
We can think of several times in Paul's letters, I think in almost the opening of almost every letter of Paul's, where he, he says, I'm called by the Lord. I'm a, I'm a servant of Christ. I've been called by the grace of God. I've been, you know, in Romans, he says, I've been set apart for the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, it's by the mercy of God that we have this ministry. And let's look at 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul's writing to Timothy, encouraging him as a young pastor. And he's speaking of Jesus. And so he says, Jesus, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, not because of our resumes, not because of our acumen, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We are called by Christ. And so these men who serve us aren't here for their own political gain. They're here. Their authority is not based on on human accomplishments. It's based on Christ. It's an authority given from Christ. One call to ministry that sticks out in Scripture is that of Peter. Jesus is sitting down with the disciples and He says, "Who who does everyone say I am? This is in Matthew 16 if you want to look. Who does everyone say that I am? Oh, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. And Well, who do you say that I am? And and, And Jesus is answered by Peter who says, well, you are the Christ. Jesus says, well, you didn't get this from men. You got this from the Holy Spirit. And on this rock, Peter, a nickname given to a guy named Simon by Jesus, the nickname means rock, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. This rock being that Jesus is the Christ. But there's a little play on words to Peter, I'm starting with you. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he says this, and I will give you the keys to kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we think, what does this have to do? This, surely this is a lot of authority. What does it have to do with discipline? Well, Jesus repeats this phrase in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, a passage we'll look at it a couple different times today, uh, is about discipline in the church. And it's about what happens when a brother is sinning and how do you confront them in their sin. And at the end of this, it when it, it says, if they still don't repent after you've gone to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, cast him out. Treat him as an unbeliever. You're still trying to reach him at that point, but treat him as an unbeliever if they're completely unrepentant in this public sin. And then Jesus repeats what he told Peter. Now, not talking just to Peter, but to the disciples and to the leaders of the church. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything and I ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Let me say this about authority. Authority is only as good as the one who issues it. We, uh, I'm, I'm not going to make a political claim here at all, but I'm just going to use this as a brief analogy. 
If I sit in my office and I issue an executive order, who's going to listen to it? Nobody. Who's going to laugh at it? All of you. But when, the, when a president issues an executive order, it's a big deal because he has authority. And so we all need to pay attention to what's in that executive order. Because it means something. Because he has authority. And the authority given to the leaders of the church isn't given from someone arbitrarily saying, well, you take care of this group of people, you take care of this group of people. It's given from Jesus. He doesn't just call to the ministry and position of elder and pastor, but then he assigns them significant authority. Jesus is the one who calls. And it's because, the, and, he, and he calls not based on qualifications, but based on his purposes and on his grace. The issue of authority and discipline within a church these issues are tense and they're emotional. But there should be comfort found in the fact that those who are in authority in these positions of elder and, and pastor are not there out of their own aspirations, but are there on the calling of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ. And they're not exercising authority based on their whims and moods at the time. But they're, they're exercising the authority based on the purposes of Christ. It is God who qualifies people. Not a degree, not a paycheck, or any other accolade. So authority of local church elders and pastors is from Christ. And it is also for Christ. This authority given is for Christ. That passage from 2 Timothy, Paul wrote, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. The authority is for the purpose and based on the purpose and grace of Jesus, which He gave before the ages began. This is why it's so crucial to keep Jesus as the head of the church central to the issues of authority in the church and exercise of discipline. If discipline is not for Jesus, then what's the point of it? Then it becomes abusive. And so, authority of the church being for Christ, I want to... I wanna, break down just three general ways at risk of this becoming a sermon within a sermon. Three general ways that, that discipline is for Jesus. And the first is that it's from His Word. It's based on His Word. Hebrews 4.12-13 teach us that God's Word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It divides bone and marrow. It lays us completely open before God. And then in verse 13, and that by it we are judged. And so it is God's Word that we hold up and we sit under and we say, I am subject to this. I am correctable by this. And if, if something in my life falls out of order from Scripture, it's not Scripture that needs to change. It's my life that needs to change. 
I come to Scripture to be informed. For Scripture to show me what reality should be. I don't come to Scripture to say, well, clearly you're outdated and uneducated. I have a liberal arts degree. How foolish that would be. I need God's Word to light my path. To keep my ways from wandering from the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that, that all Scripture is is breathed, not just breathed out by God, but it's useful for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This sounds like discipline. God's Word isn't just here so we can read a psalm and feel better about our day. It's here to correct us and reproof us. We're sinful. God is holy. We're growing in holiness. Growing in holiness means there's going to be a lot of times where, where we're, our sin is pointed out to us. And sometimes it's pointed out in our, in our daily devotions, and our reading, maybe we're reading the Bible through the year, and we're encountering our sin and what God's Word says about it, and sometimes it's sitting across a room from someone who's saying, this isn't right. This needs to change. So it's from His Word. It's also for Jesus' purpose. Back in Matthew 18, there's this great passage, 15-20, to and it guides so many churches on how to handle corrective discipline and how to deal with unrepented sin. And it starts with one-on-one, then it goes to two-on-one, and then it goes to the church if it's still not. But in verse 15, we get this goal. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, if he listens, here's the goal of all church discipline, you have gained a brother. You think of Paul. Even Paul had some very harsh words for discipline. He talks in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians about handing people over to Satan. And it's not, I've handed them over to Satan so that they can see that I was right all along and how terrible they are. No, it's so that they might be taught not to sin, so that their soul can be saved. They're going to suffer, but in that suffering, hopefully they're brought back to Jesus. And no matter how harsh a discipline is within the church, the goal is for Jesus' goals, which is reconciliation, restoration, that someone says, I do have sin, and I need to take that to the cross instead of boasting in it. Discipline is done in the name of Jesus with His motives in mind. And those who, who exercise this authority do so knowing as, as Hebrews 13, 17 says that they're going to have to give an account for the souls they're watching over. And as James 3, 1 says that those who teach will be judged more harshly. It is not a light thing. It is not for our purposes. It is not for a bottom line. It is for the glory of God. So here we have that finally the the authority given by Jesus is for His glory. Now we get to the real purpose of this. 
when church discipline is done right, no matter how hard it is, how messy and it gets messy, how painful and it gets painful, when it is done right, Christ is glorified. We glorify Jesus. Jesus isn't just worshipped when we sing to Him. Jesus is worshipped also when we go to brothers and sisters in Christ and we urge them to walk more closely with their Savior. And sometimes that's a really fun process. And sometimes it's a really painful process that causes us to lose sleep, that brings out tears, that makes hair turn gray and fall out. I'm not blaming you. Dave last week took us to 1 Peter 5, and I want to take us there again real quick. To the manner that elders should lead. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willing as God would have you. This heart of, I want to serve the Lord, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I want to serve the Lord by serving His people. In the words that Peter himself heard, by feeding the lambs, not domineering. I think the NIV says, not lording it over them, your authority. But being examples to the flock. And here it is, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive this unfading crown of glory. We do this for the chief shepherd because we long for his appearing. And any glory that we get is really his own glory. Henry Nouwen in his book, In the Name of Jesus, he says the question isn't how many people take you seriously or can you show some results. The question is, do you know God? Are you in love with the incarnate God? That's the question. That's the question before our elders. It's the question before our pastors. It's the question before you as a congregation. It's not about results. It's not about boasting, oh, we're sending nearly 40 people to the island of Hispaniola this year to two different countries, the DR and Haiti. We're not boasting in that. We boast in the fact that Jesus died for our sins and we love Him. This authority and discipline is not only from Christ and for Christ, but it's also for Christ's body. In 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul is instructing Timothy that in order for the the sake of the health of his church that he's pastoring, to hold to the Word of God, especially when it's incredibly unpopular to do. Hold to the Word of God when it means reproving your congregation and rebuking them. 
hold to the Word of God when it flies directly in the face of the actions of your people. And be prepared to do this. Whether it's on a Thursday morning or late on a Tuesday night, be prepared to tell someone, hey, you need to walk with the Lord here and you're not. So what needs to change? Mark Deaver, who compared discipline to Brussels sprouts, fantastic analogy, he says that church discipline takes on two basic forms. The first is formative discipline. This is very common. Formative discipline, uh, to, to liken this to our physical health, this would be like going to the doctor and the doctor telling you, you need to eat a little better and maybe exercise some more. This is very basic discipleship. This is what happens in our adult Bible fellowship classes. This is what's happening now. This is what happens when we hear preaching. This is what happens when we're doing Bible studies with each other. That we're reading God's Word and we're, it's confronting our sinfulness in these areas of our life that we try to keep uncrucified. And it's saying we need to lay that down and come to Jesus in all of our life. It's hearing love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and realizing, well, maybe I'm not loving God with all my mind. Some people ask, well, why don't we do more church discipline than we do? We don't see much church discipline at Westchester. I think there's a lot of times where the first step of Matthew 18, the one-on-one discussion, or the the second step, the two-on-one discussion, accomplishes its goal, and it's never brought to the church. I also think there's a whole lot of times where you as a congregation hear God's Word, and you do the most remarkable thing, you listen to it. And so there's this discipline that's constantly going on, but it's pleasant because we approach God's Word with a soft heart. And praise God for that. I thank the Holy Spirit for doing that work in this congregation. The other form is corrective discipline. A number of years ago, I had to have surgery on my right foot to remove a bone fragment that was causing a great amount of pain. And I tried to put off the surgery because a wise person once told me that there's no problem that surgery can't make worse. <laughs> he heard that from a, from a surgeon. And so I tried to put off surgery. I got cortisone shots. I, oh, man. It was just unbelievable pain. I could barely walk. I couldn't run at all. If my foot just grazed the side of a table, it would just shoot pain up my leg. I had to go, but, but the surgery and the recovery from the surgery the next couple days after it was more painful than before I had the surgery. I had to temporarily increase my pain through invasive and drastic measures in order to decrease my pain and improve my quality of life over the long haul. The church is a body. Sometimes the body gets sick. 
And sometimes there's a specific ailment that causes the body a lot of harm. And it needs to be dealt with. And it hurts. Temporarily, it hurts a lot. Maybe more than before it was dealt with. And there's pain, and there's tears, and sometimes we don't want to talk to each other about it. But it needs to be dealt with. The body needs to make whatever that is work right again. Or it won't be able to function. But the goal is always restoration. No matter how corrective the discipline needs to be. One of the problems we have is an embarrassment of riches of really healthy churches. And so sometimes someone needs to be corrected and before they can go through those channels of correction, they just go find another healthy church to be a part of and they go there and say, oh, things weren't working out so I wanted to worship here instead. No that when discipline is done, it's done for you. It's done for the health of the body of believers. And there are times when an elder or pastor finds himself sitting across the room from someone who says, I want to do X or have done X and it was great. And we open up the Bible and say, God disapproves of X. It can't be any more plain than this. God disapproves of this. He, he, he just, this is, Jesus died so X wouldn't happen anymore. And so you could be forgiven of X. And they say, I'm going to keep doing X. But I'm going to do it quietly and just go find another church that won't, won't do anything about it or doesn't know about X. All of us are here because we realize that none of us are good enough. And we, you're here for one reason or another this morning tied to the fact that you feel like you need to be walking with God and this is part of it. And you feel like not everything in your life is right and so you come to church hoping to hear from God's Word, hoping to benefit from worship, hoping someone will pray for you and with you in what you're going through. And those are great And if and when that day comes that someone has to sit across the room for you and open the Bible and say, what you're doing grieves the heart of God. I ask this of you. Would you have a soft heart? For the sake of your soul, will you have a soft heart? We don't do this so that we can go to church conferences and say, well, no one in our church is sinning. (laughs) You must be a terrible pastor. We don't do this for any sort of plaque or accolade. We do this because of the glory of Christ. We do this by the authority that He has given the church. And, And what ends up happening 
when this is done right, is you have a bunch of people who are pastors and elders who are only there because of the grace of Jesus trying to show someone desperately in need of the grace of Jesus the grace of Jesus. It's an expression I've used before. It ends up being one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Only too often in the case of church discipline, the starving beggar says, I don't need bread. I'm fine on my own. I have a friend that I did ministry with for a long time, and, and as, you, as you do ministry with someone for a long time, you rub off on each other. And one of the things I'm really thankful that he rubbed off on me, is he goes, man, as ministers of the gospel, we need to live a lifestyle of repentance. That the more I walk with Christ, I just need to get better and better at repenting of my sin. As a body of believers, let's be really good at repenting of our sin. Let's fight and do hard work to keep a soft heart before God. And please know as, as one of your pastors that we love you that even in discipline and in tough things, we do this out of a posture of service. Of serving Christ our King and serving you. And we take the role of being those who watch over your souls very seriously. Let's cry out to God asking for His grace and praising Him that His mercies are new every morning. Father God, we are so thankful that You don't require perfection from us, that You don't base our salvation on us, but You base it on Yourself. And as we, as a body of believers, are continually coming to You We pray that you would help us through your Son, help us through your Spirit, help us through your Word, and help us through each other. Amen. Can we stand together as we close?